You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Kermit Pattison on the show with me today. He has an amazing new book. It's called Fossil Men, The Quest for the Oldest Skeleton and the Origins of Humankind. Uh, this is a must-have uh, for your bookshelf for this fall going into it. This is this is a hefty book, but it is uh, it, it is a page-turner. Uh, Kermit, one of my favorite um, uh, genres or styles of book uh, to read is is narrative nonfiction, I, and I I love uh, learning something and getting a glimpse into the real world, but having fun while I'm doing it and 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 following along on a on an adventure. And your book definitely delivers that. Welcome to the show, Kermit. Uh, well, it's it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining me, um, Kermit. We begin each show with the same question, and that question is. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Uh, okay. Well, it it's, there's um, kind of a few uh, uh, preface memories, but then one big memory. So if you don't mind, if I give you a, a little bit of a stretched out Of answer. course. Uh, so I remember, this is probably around fourth grade or so, um, we had some, you know, silly writing assignment and uh, I wrote this short story about uh, Santa and the elves and the elves went on strike. And uh, I don't know where I got this idea, but I remember the comments came back and then the teacher, this, you know, very sweet lady named Miss Douglas. She said something to the effect of you're a good storyteller. You could be a writer someday. And that sort of like, really, my teacher said that, um, you know, now being old and cynical, I'm probably, I, I sort of asked myself, well, she probably, says that to every other kid. But anyway, at that time, I was not cynical. So I kind of took that. Uh, it just planted a little seed somewhere. And then, you know, growing up, I know there was a, I was, I remember like writing like the family newspaper, neighborhood newspaper, uh, you know, kind of like trying to mimic the New York Times, except, you know, writing about, you know, the pancake breakfast that my father and I had, or, or <laughs> the fact that my, my brother got thrown out of school or, you know, whatever, this stuff like this. Um, so those are kind of, again, the little seeds being dropped, but I think really the time for me that I sort of embraced the writer identity was, um, it, it, oddly enough, it was, uh, it was induced by a, a machine, a toy that I got, and that was a typewriter. I remember my mother and I went somewhere, I think it was like Woolworths or some department store, and uh, there was this Smith Corona electric typewriter. And this is, of course, like before computers became a thing. You know, sure. no one had a computer then, except if you had like a mainframe in a university or something. So, you know, this whole idea of laptops just did not exist back then. And, um, uh, and so we bought it and I'm probably in ninth grade at this point. And uh, this was like a little electric typewriter, Smith Corona. And it had like these interchangeable uh, 
uh, typefaces you could put in, change out the balls. You could put like, you know, you had like your regular type ball, but then like an italics ball and stuff. And, you know, my mother who, who was been an aspire writer for a long time, she had a, um, an old, you know, Smith Corona manual typewriter, but I came home, I had an electric typewriter. And I remember I set this thing up in my room, you know, with the typing paper and, uh, this kind of opened a world. I just started typing and I'd start typing like little parody news stories or plays or short stories. Um, now, the backdrop of this is I was a complete screw up as a student growing up. <laughs> and I had like, and I always getting in trouble, you know, got suspended from school for a while. I would, you know, never, this is like in elementary school, junior high, you know, got in a lot of trouble. I was a kid who was always more interested in like making explosives or, or, <laughs> screwing around or, you know, making catapults that shot water balloons, you know, 200 meters or, you know, whatever. And um, so I think I really frustrated my teachers, but something about this typewriter uh, captivated me. So I remember uh, I wrote short stories and I remember I wrote this one short story and then I had to turn it in for uh, an English assignment. And I was kind of proud of this. It was uh, a short story, (laughs) short story about I don't even know. I don't even know if I was proud yet. I was curious how the teacher would react to this. So the story was about um, a person in a mental institution. So I, I have a, a family member who uh, is has mental illness, and at one point we went to visit in this mental institution. I just remember it being a really grim place, you know, winter day and seeing the sun go down and stuff. And anyway, and then later went to my electric typewriter and started to tap out what it would like to live there. And in this story, about a page long, you sort of see this character kind of moving through this environment. And it slowly dawns upon the reader that this person is institutionalized, but it's not to the last line that that's really revealed. So anyway, uh, so I hand this thing in and I'm just really curious, like how the teacher will react to it. This is the ninth grade. And I remember the teacher walked past me in the hallway. Uh, and he says, I got to talk to you, calls me into this room and closes the door. And he said, you plagiarized that paper, didn't you? And I said, said, no, I didn't. And he's like, he's like, well, you call this character, uh, Gonzo in your story. Cause I had like the book that I had just read recently was fear of loathing in Las Vegas, which, you know, I thought was just the most wild thing you know ever like what what an, what an adventure so i just happened to like borrow the name gonzo but i said no no i, I wrote that story he's like i don't think you're capable of writing this story and i assured him that i had and i did and i wrote it not only did i write it but i wrote it on my electric typewriter <laughs> <laughs> not my mother's manual typewriter my electric typewriter and uh anyway so eventually he was persuaded that i had indeed written this story and said okay and that that, that kind of stuck in my mind that, you know, I was could write something that um, that he thought was uh, uh, that had probably been published somewhere. <laughs> and that I had just, you know, grabbed it. So anyway, that was uh, that kind of planted another seed. I'll stop there. I've probably given you too long an answer. But no, that, that, that was a perfect answer. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of those those uh, electric typewriters, I'm uh, I'm a bit of a. a nostalgia fan uh for for that type of of writing um machine uh if for for lack of a better term but um there's there's something tactile about 
you know, mashing the key, seeing it uh, appear on the page. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to trade in my word processor for that by any means. Right. But right. but I feel like sometimes that we've we've lost a bit of something. There there's something magical uh, that that just comes from uh, from those. Do do you ever long for those days or? Or you know, find a typewriter and just type up something and see what comes out. Well, I, I don't I don't have a, a, a typewriter anymore. Uh, you know, I, I don't, the, the electric typewriter is probably sitting in a landfill somewhere now. Uh, but uh, but I do, I do know what you mean. I mean, and uh, I, I think of it. I, I tend to have those feelings more around uh, handwriting. Yeah. Uh, but I think the same thing is is true of typewriters. I mean, there's a finality to it where you have to produce a draft, and you you know right. you just float through the page, a you know to, from the beginning to the end, and that forces you to sort of have a coherent narrative. Uh, so you know, and you can revise the draft, but you have to revise the the whole draft or at least a whole page. Exactly. In computers, it's all fluid. And, you know, it, it, it's difficult to know, like, when I have a draft, you know, I mean, like, like, take the Fossilman manuscript. I mean, that thing was, you know, hundreds of pages long. And, um, you know, there's no draft one, draft two or whatever. It's just a day by day. It's just sort of fluidly evolving. So it's like the difference between like water moving versus a solid object moving. It's just uh, um, it, 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 you have to engage with your material in a different way. And, and right. I find actually part of the peril of, of having a computer is that sometimes you can rewrite like parts of a sentence and not the whole right. sentence and not the whole paragraph. And, the, you know, I think the danger is there, at least for me, um, the danger is uh, you can insert something that you know, doesn't cohere with the whole paragraph, but, you know, especially yeah. when writing about a science book, like I do, it's like, okay, I got to tweak that to make it, you know, perfectly accurate. But, you know, if you're only tweaking part of the sentence, it might cause problems with the whole, the, the, you know, the whole animal, like, like with what animal, if you like tweaking one body part, you got to really redesign the whole animal because, uh, you know, if you design a, you know, a, a fish with kangaroo feet, it's not going to, survive yeah <laughs> right there's there's definitely a butterfly effect uh that can happen if you're not careful yeah yeah so kermit um fossil men which just came out a couple of days ago congratulations uh that the book is out and and getting into people's hands now um but what have you been doing uh you know, between that that ninth grade story and <laughs> and fossil men what uh, what has been your path to get to this point yeah. So what has been my path? Okay. So, um, I, after, so I got out of college, you know, majored in history, didn't, um, really do any kind of, I did a little bit of journalism, like the student paper, but didn't major in journalism, anything like that. But, uh, then I decided I'm going to go work for a, a newspapers. I mean, this was kind of, the tried and true path, you know, that Hemingway had done. I mean, this is um, what a lot of people in those days told me was a good path for an aspiring writer because you have to write a lot, you have to write fast. Sure. And, you know, you do this, you go find a small town somewhere where you can 
learn by doing and make all your mistakes. And uh, so uh, I started um, looking around for a job. And uh, this is in uh, in early 1990s. And um, everyone then was talking about how the newspaper industry was in decline. Well, you had seen nothing yet. I mean, that was there was still paper, <laughs> still no Internet. I mean, they were did not know how good they had it because, you know, I proceeded to watch the industry really die uh, or at least go into severe contraction uh, in, you know, over the next decade or so. But anyway, uh, I wound up getting a job at this little, little paper in Key West, Florida. And I could have wound up anywhere. I was like shotgunning resumes to, you know, papers in Oregon, papers in Massachusetts, paper, you know, everywhere. And just trying to get a job. And, you know, not having had an internship at a newspaper, not having major in journalism, I was just um, trying to talk my way in the door somewhere. So I wind up getting a job at this little paper in, in Key West, Florida. And uh, I don't know if you've been to Key West, but it's a truly bizarre place. I mean, it, it is you know, the so-called southernmost city, if you follow US-1 down the East Coast, it just dead ends into this last island on the Florida Keys. And um, Key West is this weird mix of people. You've got, it's probably known in, in um, or at least back then, was known as kind of like a one of the gates, you know, like along with like Provincetown and Cape Cod or San Francisco. It was like where you know, gay people could live or take vacation back in the old days. Uh, and so you had a large uh, um, uh, uh, gay population. You had a large population of Southern Bubba's. You had a huge military presence of Navy, Coast Guard. Um, uh, drug interdiction was a big thing. Uh, large population of Cuban exiles, because it's only 90 miles from Havana across the Straits of Florida. And then all these tourists and all these people were just sort of packed into this little island. And it was just like this bizarre local news happening all the time. You know, we'd have like a boatload of, of uh, refugees coming across from Castro was still a power. So almost daily Cuban refugees arriving on all kinds of vehicles. You know, they had built homemade rafts. They had stolen fishing boats. They had, you know, stolen a crop duster. In one case, some guy flew it on a big fighter jet. And, uh, you know, I was covering all this stuff. I mean, this bizarre crimes. Um, so anyway, so I kind of cut my teeth as a local reporter and then worked at a bunch of different small papers in uh, a couple in California, Southern California, uh, and then in uh, St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, the St. Paul Pioneer Press, which was my last uh, newspaper job. And that was kind of when the newspaper industry went to severe contraction. And um, it ceased to be fun after a while. So I left, became a freelancer. And everyone said, everyone said, this is, this is crazy. No one makes a living as a freelancer. You know, you're going you're gonna to die. And uh, anyway, I didn't die. I did, I did okay. So I was freelancing for like the New York Times business section, uh, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company Magazine, um, uh, or else. Um, and then I did a, a bunch of writing for uh, a bunch of, um, uh, tech companies on the side, which was kind of like my steady income stream that kind of helped me supplement this journalistic stuff. Uh, meanwhile, I'm still thinking like there's this, I, I'm going to make my way to writing books. So what's the topic I'm going to do? What's the topic I'm going to do? And I had a couple false starts. Um, uh, 
which you know, I'll, I'll pause there. But, uh, you know, so the next transition, I guess, was to try to figure out how to finally get a book off the ground. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years, and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one -on -one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com So what... Uh, the the story of Fossil Men uh, is a fascinating story that, that spans a couple of decades and... Um, how did you stumble on to to this story that uh, that you got to interject yourself into? Uh, well, completely by accident. So what happened was I was looking around for um, thinking, OK, well, I'll write a book. What, what's it like a meaty topic? You know, um, so I had this idea that I would write uh, a book about um, the evolution of human locomotion. And so what, what does that mean? I mean, it, it's basically, you know, humans are weird primates because, I mean, if you compare us to, you know, all our cousin apes, we're, we're, we're weak, we're slow, but we have this weird capacity to be able just to trek long distance or run marathons and stuff. And that, that's, that's, that's not like 
<laughs> we're like other primates in a lot of ways, but that's one of the ways that we're not. And so, you know, I like to run, I like to cross country ski and do stuff. So this is kind of like, I'm going to write the biography of the aerobic animal. How did we develop this capacity? So I start working on that story and I, you know, come across this recently announced fossil skeleton artipithecus. And, uh, you know, it's just part of my doing background research to understand human evolution. And so I'm reading about, you know, Lucy and Artie and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking this is just going to be like a, you know, a little background, a paragraph, maybe a page. Um, and uh, but th- but then the problem is, is this little. Th- this, this recently announced discovery is really challenging a lot of the conventional wisdom about human origins. And so I can't really pass this one, just kind of weave it in with all this other stuff because the already seemed to challenge so much of like the prevailing theories about how we got here. So anyway, I start talking to some of the people on the already team and then start hearing just the stories of discovery and the stories of like that kind of the long arduous process to reconstruct the skeleton and then interpret it in all the um, uh, sort of (laughs) anguish that some of the investigators went through to make sense of this thing. And uh, all anyway, as I'm hearing these stories, I'm thinking, wow, this is really interesting. Okay. Well, maybe Artie is not just a passing reference. Maybe it's a page. Oh no, no, it's five pages. Oh no, this is actually really interesting. I, I think I need to do a chapter on this. I mean, it's you know, and that no, no, actually, there's a couple chapters in that. It's and then you know, it's it's like several chapters, and then eventually, I sort of go through this agonizing process of reappraisal and say, no, this is actually a much better book than what I'm what I had set out to do, and that took a fair amount of uh, agonizing reappraisal on my part, uh, both to, it, it was it, some of that was sort of abandoning the original topic, but some of it, an equal amount was reassuring myself that there was real substance behind this thing because, and, you know, got a lot of attention, but then the scientific community really, uh, some pretty prominent voices just rejected it, you know, rejected the claims of the discovery team. And, you know, and, and uh, people were very, some pretty prominent voices were quite dismissive of it. And, uh, you know, it seemed like, you know, that the field of human origins had taken this torpedo amidships, but then like all the captains of the profession were just like blithely sailing on as if nothing had happened. So, I had to take a fair amount of time just to convince myself that if I wrote about this, I would not be, you know, out on a lark. And anyway, so I eventually did convince myself of that and then, you know, continued to write the book. How um, how difficult was it to um, ingratiate yourself to the team? Um, because you know, it would on on one hand, it would seem like uh, they would be. Uh, you know, glad to, to, you know, that someone has taken interest and and wants to help get their story out, especially right. when so many people are dismissive. Yet right. on a, on the other hand, it would seem that they would become uh, distrustful of outside voices because of some of that pushback that they had gotten. How difficult was it to 
um, to you know, kind of become part of the team, as it were, to get yeah. to tell the story? Yeah, well, I think it was just uh, a question of persistence. Now, if I, if I had said to them, you know, at the outset, oh, OK, I want to spend 10 years on this book and, you know, fly around and and, and <laughs> write, write a huge book on this. I'm sure that they would have said, yeah, no, no, thanks. We don't know who you are. But, you know, it just sort of happened by it's kind of like mission creep, you know, I mean, like in the military, they talk about mission creep where you sort of set out to do one thing and then your sort of mission kind of expands, expands. And pretty soon you're like way beyond what you set out to do. I mean, that's it was totally mission creep. So um, the, uh, you know, in, in some ways it was not hard to sort of engage with people at like a superficial level but to get them to spend like an hour with me on the phone to talk about this or that. But, you know, to get permission to like, go into the, you know, the AFR with them as I eventually did on, um, you know, one of the expeditions and stuff um, that, that required having a level of trust, I think. And I think, I mean, you could ask, you know, them, I mean, particularly Tim White, uh, who is the, um, maybe I haven't mentioned him, but he's a uh, paleoanthropologist at Berkeley. Uh, and there's um, four team leaders uh, of, the, the team is several is dozens of people, but there's four team leaders. There's Tim, who's at Berkeley, and then there's uh, uh, his partners are all Ethiopian. Uh, there's Berhane Aspa, Johannes, or Jonas Bene, and G'day Walter Gabriel. But Tim is he's kind of the, in a lot of ways the the ringmaster of the field operation, uh, in that he's the kind of the, the guy who's the got his finger in everything. So engaging with Tim was, I think, probably a crucial step. And, and I think, and Tim is very, um, he's by far the most feared figure in the field of human origins. Now, why is that? Well, he, is, uh, he has a um, no tolerance for fools. <laughs> he <laughs> has this encyclopedic knowledge of skeletons and the fossil record. And he is, I think, just like viscerally offended by, are we allowed to swear on the show? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, by bullshit creeping into the profession. And he, uh, and he has no qualms at all about, you know, just like cutting your legs out from under you if he thinks you are promulgating bullshit. And especially if you're promulgating bullshit about the, uh, work that he and his middle Awash team done. So um, he, you know, and he doesn't, you know, he's, he's got this huge project, you know, he's really committed to his science. He's got like a scientist, scientist, and he doesn't want to waste time with people who are out of, you know, write silly books about human origins. But so, but anyway, I sat down with Tim for the first time. And I mean, this is described in the introduction and he's very irreverent, you know, he's, he's, he's hilarious to talk to, you know I mean? If, if you don't, you know, if you're not a person who gets easily offended, I mean, he, he's, uh, he, he's, uh, irreverent and he's, he, he has this withering sense of sarcasm, but he's also just a fantastic teacher. And if you want to take a sit down and talk about fossils and about this uh, discipline, about the, you know, the pursuit of human origins and how you do it. He, you could not find a better person just to sit down you know, by, 
by the fire or by a desk and just talk because he is so committed to this topic. He is so um, knowledgeable. And that's just how it started. You know, and I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to come in and ask questions like, well, tell me what's, what's the key that made us human? Or, you know, there's all these books about um, how sometimes do a search on uh, how blank made us human. You know, you can do like these little Boolean codes. You put like an asterisk in there, how blank. And then Google that and you will see like, oh my God, you know, how, how this made us human or how that made us human. And there's all these like magic bullet theories, right? And, you know, he has no patience for that because he's just a detail guy. And, um, you know, he thinks that this field is just um, uh, overrun by what he calls arm waving, you know, just like empty theorizing. And uh, that really has no basis of evidence. But anyway, so I come in and I'm just like, oh, just tell me about how you found this stuff. You know, okay, well, what that bone look like when you dug it up? And I was just really interested in like how how this science happens from the ground up right. and okay, well, this first piece of artery that you cleaned, you know, tell me, what did that look like? How'd you know that that was an opposable toe? Well, what does that mean? What, what shape, what shape do you see? How does that differ from, you know, an animal like a human that has a, you know, a straight toe for, for walking. And uh, we just sort of engaged at that level. And, you know, that went on for quite a while. And, uh, you know, so I totally geeked out on the topic. And I think that that was, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in in anyone's mouth, but I, I think they responded to the fact that I was like really interested in what they were really interested in and really wanted to understand everything about the science that I could, you know, about uh, you know how things fossilize, how geology, um, uh, you know, the importance of like understand the geology of, uh, you know, to understand how old your fossil is, the importance of understanding the developmental, uh, biology of how skeletons form in the first place, all that component science. And there's a lot of component sciences in, in, in paleoanthropology. I, I was just endlessly curious about all of that and trying to understand how all that stuff factored into this amazing narrative of the discovery story. So, uh, so how did I ingratiate myself? Well, I think it was just uh, gumshoe work and and just demonstrating that I was like sincerely interested in showing um, this science at like a boots on ground level. The uh, while the the science that you talk about in the book is absolutely fascinating and um, and and really. Uh, brings out a story that, uh, you know, that, that makes us all question all sorts of stuff. Uh, the real magic of this book is is in the the narrative tale of the people involved right. in the science. And, 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 and while the, the science is absolutely fascinating, more so uh, maybe to a lot of people is, you know, the people involved in it and, and their right. daily work and struggles and, and right. all of that. Um, w- one thing. Um, you know, about narrative nonfiction or memoir, uh, you know, which may seem, uh, you know, kind of at odds with each other, but is or close cousins in, in narrative structure a lot of times uh, is that we'll see a, you'll give us a, a glimpse through a window of time uh, mm-hmm. and certain events. How did you start um, constructing the window that you would let us see into this kind of grand 
thing that's been going on for for so long. When did you start get kind of realizing? Okay, here are the here's the 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 structure of the tale that I'm going to tell. When did that start taking shape? Yeah, well, that was by far the hardest part of this book because um, I felt like um, uh, there was so much rich material here. I mean, every time I turned over a rock, I found something interesting. There was an interesting character. There was uh, someone with a fascinating <clears throat> backstory, and you know, we we could talk about. I mean, I've mentioned Tim, but there's a lot of other people in sure in in this story. You know, there's Ethiopians with these life stories that were just astounding to me. And I think it'd be hard for a lot of people in a country like the U.S. <laughs> to grasp. You know, but anyway, um, there was like all those little biographies. That were part, you know, part of you know the Ethiopian scientists, the the, the Afar people in the desert. They met. I mean, there was this cultural collision that happened, or at least cultural interaction. It was a collision at first, and then it becomes collaboration. Um, there's that, and there's all these component sciences that I was mentioning, and then there's all the history of the field, because um, I kind of felt like that was pretty hard, important to understand, because um, it, you know to to understand you know the intellectual evolution of ideas. I came to realize is uh, a, a very important part of the story, <laughs> and 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 to me almost as fascinating as like the biological evolution of of, of the species. Um, so it's kind of a story about both these kind of parallel stories of you know the biological evolution of humans along with the the, the sort of um, evolution of humans trying to. Or the intellectual evolution of humans trying to understand our own biology. So anyway, there's there's all these elements. There's those. There's the character stories, and then when it came time to write this thing, uh, oh my god! I mean, this was uh, you know I could have written page after page about geology. I've written page after page out of, uh, about skeletons or about the hand or the foot or or Evo Devo or whatever. But how to put this into a narrative? where the reader doesn't feel like they're just getting blasted in the face with fire hose, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that by far was the hardest part. Um, and, you know, if you're a writer or, you know, a researcher who, who really delves into all this stuff, like I find all this esoterica endlessly interesting. Right. And, you know, I, but so I, I, it's easy to forget, um, what it's like to be totally uninformed about the topic. Right. And it's very easy to write for a really narrow audience. I mean, you know, scientists fall into this trap all the time. And, uh, but, you know, for them, it doesn't matter because they can write for their audience. Well, I, I can't write for their audience. I have to write for a mass audience. But at the same time, it's really important to me to be, to do that while not, uh, uh, putting together is this, you know, some fluff story that's going to make the scientist gag. So I have to kind of span both camps, if you will. So, uh, so yeah, so understanding the science was hard and, and fascinating, but the real hair pulling came when it, it was in like how to synthesize all this into a story with, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, yeah. So how did I do that? It was just, uh, uh, well, I mean, this is kind of like this so basic uh, that, uh, you know, why didn't I think of this in the first place? But just tell the story chronologically, let it unfold. I mean, there's a few there's a few cases where I, I 
couldn't do that because you have to flash back to someone's biography or flash back to, you know, a history of topic or whatever. And, and those are cases where you have to make a digression and just like, you know, just uh, tunnel down into something. But for the most part, I just decided, OK, I'll just tell this from when the mystery starts. You know, which is, you know, the beginning of this expedition in 1981, where they're off to find like whatever, trying to find, you know, whatever came before Lucy and then just let that unfold. And then you have to, you know, take a couple flashbacks, particularly to the Lucy era, uh, to understand why they came there. But anyway, that's that's the solution that I came up with was just to start there, you know, with the sec- their first expedition that that Tim and his partner, Bahani Asfa, took into the took into Ethiopia uh, and then just let the story unfold from there. Well, if you are a fan of science or, uh, or, or just, um, you know, a, a fan of, of great stories of intriguing people, you're going to love fossil men. Uh, it's available everywhere. Now we're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Kermit, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, um, is there a place online where they can find you and connect with you? Yeah, I have a website, which is just uh, my first name, last name, Kermit Patterson dot com. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I <laughs> so I I, uh, I am starting to uh, engage in social media. I started a Twitter account just a couple of days ago. Um, I mean, this is kind of a little aside uh I, I we could talk about social media in a second but i've been an absolute social media hermit for the last well basically since social media started and uh i this is kind of interesting because i actually used to write for the new york times business section and back in the early days of like facebook and twitter i actually covered these companies and like well it, not the companies per se but i was writing about small business and i wrote a series of stories about like how businesses could use these new tools, Twitter, YouTube, you know, Facebook. And, uh, you know, at this point, you know, I mean, this is sounds like I've been admitting I'm a dinosaur, right? That these were like emerging tools back then. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember uh, having this conversation with this Facebook executive and he was excitedly talking about, you know, all the things that one could do with Facebook. Like, if, so if you're chatting with your friend, you know, to go get coffee, we can target you for advertising for your local coffee shops and all and they're just describing like all the stuff that they can do and that felt rather creepy so i've been off social media ever since and uh so now i am uh, i am yes the caveman who's now kind of have to emerge the social media caveman to re-engage with the world uh so i am uh, you know my kids are like light years ahead of me uh, when it comes to social media <laughs> But anyway, to answer your question, I just have a website right now. Great. We'll put links to it in the show notes to make it easy for people to find you and for you to pick up a copy of Fossil Men, The Quest for the Oldest Skeleton and the Origins of Humankind. Uh, Kermit, this has been uh, so much fun chatting, and I'm going to send everyone to pick up a copy of the new book. Uh, thanks for taking time to come on the show. Oh, it was great. my great pleasure. So thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. And thanks for reading. On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution. The new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. 
But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, grab your copy today. Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones.